Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hi, this is Perry Marshall, and I'm here with Dr. Kai-Fu Lee, and I wasn't familiar with them before a mutual friend reached out and said, hey, you should interview this guy, but I started looking and I got more and more and more fascinated. And um, he has a bunch of very interesting talks about AI on YouTube and other places. And he's the chairman and CEO of a venture capital firm called Cinovation Ventures. And they manage $1.7 billion of investment capital. And before he founded that company, Dr. Lee was the president of Google China. So not a trivial position. Dr. Lee is author of seven best-selling books in Chinese and launching a new book, AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. And Dr. Lee, I am very excited to talk to you about this. I'm very interested in AI, very interested in its implications for society, its implications for investment. So Welcome. I understand you're in LA today. Tell us why you're in LA. I think people would be interested in hearing that too. Oh, certainly. Uh, I'm in LA to attend the two conferences, but uh, primarily to support my friend, Peter Diamandis, uh, who has been behind XPRIZE and Abundance. And I think he and I and you are trying to do the same thing, which is get people to take bold uh, moves and try to change the world for the better. Uh, and belief that technology is a positive force for the whole world. So just before we went on, you were talking about how various uh, military and other fundings had created these moonshot incentives and that you really believe in this. And we were talking about Peter Diamandis, who of course uh, started the XPRIZE Foundation started Hero X, which is the prize platform that hosts my Evolution 2.0 prize. Uh, tell us a story about that. I'm not sure most people really know hmm. what has happened with those things. They're lost in the mists of the past. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think the, the rise of artificial intelligence today is largely thanks to DARPA, which is the advanced research funder from the Defense Department in the U.S., and uh, this is not classified research, but what they did was they looked for audacious goals that were uh, far from being reachable, but appears reachable in the maybe 20-year time frame. It was too long for venture capital to fund, but seemed technology with some concentrated effort, breakthroughs can be made to become commercial. So anyway, they started funding in the 70s and 80s, speech recognition in 80s and 90s, computer vision competition, and then in the late 80s and 90s, a autonomous vehicle competition, mm. and also along the way, dialogue competition for human AI to have a dialogue, as well as machine translation competition. So if we look today at the five hottest areas of advanced AI, 
They are speech recognition and synthesis, which has become mainstream everywhere, Siri and Alexa and so on. Uh, computer vision, we see all kinds of vision technologies for facial recognition, object recognition, beating human performance. And we see machine translation. I think we'll see translating apps as good as um, bilingual people, not as good as professional translators in the market for nearly free on our phones soon. And um, we're seeing dialogue. We're talking to our Alexa. And then, of course, autonomous vehicle is the biggest area of infused capital, even though it hasn't quite hit the market yet. In each of these cases, they funded something which took maybe 10 more years of research, 10 more years of industrialization, and it hits the world. And the purpose of these um, uh, hairy, audacious uh, goals was that they were, it, we all knew it as researchers. It wasn't far, but we need, but yet we also, also we knew it was probably not impossible. So it's got that element. Secondly, we knew more research was needed. And thirdly, these were exciting things. They were not just, you know, uh, very nerdy scientific things. <laughs> these motivated all the grad students. You know, I remember an autonomous vehicle, Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, MIT, every year viewed this was the big competition to see who's number one, because these were the jointly number one rated PhD computer science programs by a number of uh, organizations. And they feel like whoever wins this competition of autonomous vehicle, at the time, the vehicles couldn't drive on real roads. They were just driving on deserts to see if they can go from place A to place B with essentially no obstruction. And uh, it was very early days. It was so exciting. And hundreds and thousands of people showed up. Media reported it. So I think that kind of excitement to make scientific research and researchers into heroes sets the example for the whole society. So I'm kind of saddened that since uh, the 90s, they haven't continued by as much by DARPA and SF. And it's really the civilian efforts, such as Peter's and yours, that have picked up. Uh, so I hope all the governments will consider it, as well as civilian efforts to reinvigorate the energy behind uh, these moonshots. So what kind of money did they put into this stuff? Like, give us some idea. Like, was it millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions? What was the time frame? Can you help us understand that? Well, I was only a part of the speech and natural language, which was on the order, I think, of um, 15 million per year for maybe 10 years. I could be slightly wrong about the numbers, but keep in mind, these were 1980s dollars. So translated yeah. today would be several times that. Got it. Okay. You have this really interesting story that you tell about neglecting your family in favor of technology and work and kind of getting a correction. You circle around and you kind of make a point about AI. Could you tell us that story? Uh, certainly. Uh, I've been a workaholic my whole life. Uh, much better now, but some say I still am sometimes. But uh, for the first uh, 50 years of my life, work was the primary purpose. Basically humored my family, gave them enough attention. They couldn't complain too much. I was a passing grade son, husband, and uh, father. But all my time was prioritized by my work. I worked about 70 to 80 hours a week. And whatever work needed, I was there. What time was left, I gave to my family. And that was how I worked. Uh, until uh, in 2003, 
I was diagnosed with uh, fourth stage lymphoma. That was a big shock to me. Obviously, I had to go through the shock, denial, eventually acceptance. But when I finally accepted, I realized my family, my values were really uh, backwards, that I had neglected my family. My father had passed away, and I never even had the chance to ever tell him I loved him. Mm-hmm. My uh, mother uh, had dementia and barely remembered me. And my children had grown up and gone to college. And there I was realizing that if I only had 100 days to live, that I would not spend one day of it working or a thousand days left, I would not spend one day working because what was really special to me was the love from the people when I got sick, how they took care of me in a selfless way. And I felt that I've um, not even deserved this love. And I felt that I regretted not following some of my passion, not being helpful to more people equally. And really, if I had to do it over again, I would do things differently, but I couldn't do that. So I focused on getting good treatment. And uh, fortunately, my cancer has been in remission and I've changed my life. So now, whenever my daughters are on vacation, I drop my work and go to them because I'm a venture capitalist, I have some freedom. When they don't need me, I can still work very hard. Uh, whenever my wife had some you know, challenges in the home or whatever, I would prioritize that higher, uh, anniversary, birthdays, and so on. So, and when I spent time with them, I wasn't there on my phone, secretly doing work. I was <laughs> full heart, I used to do that, but I was full heartedly there. And same with my friends, I got time to relax and see, you know, develop some hobbies and and my life became much more complete. I probably still work 60 hours a week, but that 15 hours less of work devoted to family made me much happier, much more complete. And I tried to share that with people, uh, especially in China where I work, but uh, China is a country full of workaholics and that became my worst selling book. (laughs) So I thought, okay, fine. If you don't want to listen, I'll go back. What I can. <laughs> that was one of my not best-selling books in Chinese. Uh, but anyway, uh, then I started, uh, we started investing in AI, and we saw that one of the biggest issues in AI was that it was taking away jobs from people. And I think in the short term, it presented all kinds of challenges. But because I came recover from, from cancer and saw work shouldn't be the most important thing, and I start thinking back, why is it that we as humanity became addicted to work? I think it was perhaps the Industrial Revolution, where the capitalists felt like they wanted to make sure everybody loved work because the work they were generating were boring. But if people felt, if I did this boring work and did a lot of it, I could achieve the American dream or the Chinese dream, make my family better. And it was worth it after all. So people worked harder and harder. But I think maybe AI is like the opposite of industrial revolution. It's coming, take away the routine jobs. And maybe it's God's way of telling people that you've been foolish. Uh, yes, you don't, working is good. Contributing to society, society is good. But that can't be the only thing. You've become too maniacally focused on work. Let's take away a bunch of jobs especially those that don't move you forward as humanity, routine jobs, and then give you a chance, give you a lot of wealth, abundance to afford to be able to love the arts and uh, improve ourselves 
uh, find jobs that were creative and strategic, enhance our compassion and love for each other, and that maybe AI is here to liberate us from routine jobs and make us think again, what does it mean to be human? So is it fair to say that this experience of workaholism followed by cancer, followed by, hey, wait a minute, I've been misprioritizing, it actually got you to realize that there is a mechanical side of life, which AI deals with, and then there is an analog, organic human side of life. The industrial revolution in humanity as a whole has been mixing the two together indiscriminately, sort of like you were mixing, you were confusing those things indiscriminately, and all of a sudden, your personal crisis brought these into great relief. Wait, this is not that. Is that a fair way to look at it? Yeah, exactly. Also, in my illness, I went to see a Buddhist master. What he told me was that people are weak and that we can succumb to a lot of temptations and temptations of money, temptations of power, temptations of fame, and that it is very easy for us to conflate those things with things that sound good, right? So I'm trying to make the world a better place, so I have to build an amazing company, so I have to work hard. Or that Uh. I want to influence all the young people, so I have to write a lot of books, then I have to be, really, I want to be famous. So in each of these cases, it's our greed and our weaknesses that inside we want fame and fortune, but we sugarcoat them with this um, altruistic desire to be <laughs> and, and we're liars all the time and we need, and he said, Kaifu, you should ask yourself in your heart, whenever you do something, are you really trying to help the world or are you trying to improve your brand and make more money? And that was, <laughs> wow. That separates. Wow. You are, I think your comments are the same, uh, that it forced me to separate these two worlds. And I'm not sure I do a perfect job, but his words ring in my ears every time I'm, you know, looking at some opportunity. Well, so this really calls us to ask the question, what's the difference between a human and a machine? So humans have been doing the jobs of machines since the 1600s, it seems, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And you realized, hey, wait a minute. I've been acting like a machine and I'm not a machine. Right. Right. Machines don't dread the day that they die. We do. Right. Yes. Wow. Okay. Well, so one of the interesting things in your work, you talk in great depth about what is going on in China. And most Americans and Canadians think of China as this uh, smoggy, dreary place with a whole bunch of factories, and they make all of our stuff over there, okay? And, well, I'm not sure they realize how aggressively Chinese programmers and entrepreneurs and technologists are really pushing things forward and like what's really even going on over there. Now, 
I've adopted two kids from China. I've been to China five times. I know China very well, but most people don't. So, you know, you're, <laughs> you told me before the call, yeah, um, I take more of those trans-Pacific airline flights than I probably should. I'm sure you've been almost everywhere in China. So can you explain what do Americans not understand about Chinese technology? Sure. Uh, first, China does have these um, very old factory and people who do so much repetitive work in factories who make products for the world. China also has uh, still poor, although not, although no longer do people go hungry, but there's still 30 million Chinese people under extreme poverty. So it is not like America where it's, you know, largely middle class. But on the other hand, China also has a hundred cities, each with over two million people. And these cities are very well developed. They are often more modern than some American top uh, 50 cities. Uh, they have strong infrastructure, government put a lot of money, uh, there's a middle class, and there are actually a lot of wealthy people who've done very well on traditional and technology. So it's a country with different tiers of wealth and living conditions. So the old view isn't wrong, it's just um, incomplete. Now, of course, the fastest growing part has been the large cities where uh, people migrate to. China has a uh, education system which pretty much sorts out people by IQ, if you will. By American standards, it's probably a little bit narrow. You know, you want to look more diversely, but people take these tests and the top scorers go to the top schools. So it's been fairly effective in selecting mostly super smart people to go to top schools. And then top companies hire from top schools. And because it's a country of 1.4 billion people, assuming you know top 10% of the smartest people make it to good universities, they make it to good jobs, the top 1% of the 10% become entrepreneurs or CEOs. So this is a meritocracy. Now, I would acknowledge that it misses a lot of people who might not be good at taking tests, but who are brilliant, like Steve Jobs. Um, yeah. But nevertheless, it finds most really smart people. So this system is very good for entrepreneurship because if you're an entrepreneur and you, what you want to do is get money from the top VC, hire people from the top schools, make sure they work hard, the CEO gives directions, and then the whole machine moves forward with everyone working 80 to 100 hour weeks. So that's the entrepreneurial scene. And how has that developed? Well, 10 years ago, it was still mostly a copycat environment. With, because U.S. had this developed uh, hardware, software, internet, mobile industry, and China has been catching up. But what happened in the last 10 years was the Chinese mobile population went rapidly from about uh, 300 million to about uh, 800 million. And the use, the 3G, 4G became incredibly affordable. The Chinese app became quite good. They began as um, inspired by American apps, such as um, Google, Facebook, Amazon. But then they moved into their own localized and in many cases, innovative apps. So if you can imagine in a short period of 10 years, these Chinese apps, many of them became as good and if some became better than the American apps. So for example, WeChat, that's the number one social app, is uh, I personally think is significantly better than WhatsApp and uh, Facebook Messenger. 
And um, the various types of uh, e-commerce, I think, may not be better than Amazon, but they're more diverse. There's a lot of new forms of e-commerce, like Pinduoduo is a company that does uh, social gamified e-commerce. It became a $25 billion company in three years. And uh, in terms of um, uh, social networks, gaming, uh, sort of the uh, multimedia networks, you know, the top ones in America, Instagram and Snapchat. But in China, the new ones emerging called uh, TikTok and Kuaishou. Uh, These two have 300 million daily active users. It's larger than American population. Daily active means every day they use it. Uh, Weibo is a product that's like Twitter, but now better. So, and China has developed a lot of new business models like Ant Financial is a $150 billion company that displaces credit cards. So people are paying uh, by mobile phone. Credit cards are almost gone. Cash is almost gone in China. Can't even spend it if you have it. And the mobile phone is, uh, payment is so efficient. It's paid uh, on one or two clicks. It doesn't, when there's worry or fraud, they don't call you and ask you questions. You just show your face and scan it around and it knows who you are, who you say you are. And also it charges almost no fees, unlike credit cards, which is like a two or 3% tax on the whole economy. So now in the 10 years later, the Chinese internet, mobile internet companies have about the same market capitalization as the American in aggregate. So, so fast and maybe a third of it is innovative apps that don't exist in the US. And now they're going outside to Southeast Asia, Middle East, South America, and even Africa. So I think the Chinese technology companies have grown so fast, sometimes it's not well understood or even believed in the US. And finally, all this growth creates a lot of data. And that data becomes rocket fuel for artificial intelligence. So every one of the companies I mentioned has become an AI company, just as Facebook, Google, Amazon have become AI companies. Now you can see there are an equivalent number emerging in China. The velocity of the growth of the Chinese companies is faster than the American companies. So if they're about equal today, they'll probably eclipse the U.S. companies, at least in the consumer field. Of course, AI has other uses, and in some other uses, like autonomous vehicles, U.S. is ahead, robotics, U.S. is ahead, computer vision and speech, China is ahead. So it's kind of a neck-to-neck competition in AI, even though the American researchers are far more advanced than Chinese because the, the products are well understood and the data contributes so much to the quality of the uh, experience. Well, if you understand network effect you understand that twice as much data is worth four times as much money, essentially, right? right? So North America and Europe can probably supply five or 600 million English-speaking people, and China's got uh, two or three times that many people. And, uh, I mean, you said 800 million people, but That's using cell phones or something like that, right? So yeah, there are still some not yet online, but they will be in the next few years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so what does this mean? Like, how is this going to affect us? And is this good or is this bad? Like what, what should people make of all of this? In my book, AI Superpowers, I talk about the China and U S becoming way ahead of the world, ahead of the world. 
a lot of people focus on U.S.-China competition, but I actually think the bigger issue is U.S.-China responsibility because these are the two countries that will have companies that make trillions of dollars. AI is going to add $16 trillion to our global GDP, and China's going to take the biggest chunk. U.S. will take the next biggest chunk. So, you know, the two countries got all this money that's been made using AI. AI also creates a lot of problems, problems including privacy, data security, uh, biases, also wealth inequality and job displacements, which come hand in hand because the, the money being made is going to the hands of the ultra-rich who benefit from AI. Not only the AI companies, but also the first pharmaceutical company who figures out how to do drug invention using AI-enhanced scientists. You know, the first convenience store that figures out how to use AI for autonomous stores and so on and so forth. So it's going to the ultra-rich. Then AI as an, a capability that can do routine jobs will replace humans in the routine jobs. These are not just the factory workers. Actually, they come late. This is about the warehouse workers, the drivers, uh, the cashiers, and the tellers, as well as the white-collar jobs, the assistants to accountants and um, uh, lawyers and the customer service and um, uh, loan officers and so on. So these jobs are going to be gone. So you've got the lower-income segment uh, losing their jobs, to AI, and then you've got higher tycoons being created. So it's a within country wealth inequality, but more importantly, geopolitically, it's a global inequality because China and US, despite the challenges, they got all this money, they'll figure it out out the way for people to be retrained for new jobs. But what about poorer countries? Countries that had been hoping to emerge by using the so-called China model that is doing using low-cost labor to manufacture, or the India model that is using low-cost labor to do repetitive white-collar tasks. Those jobs will be wiped out. So the countries with relatively unskilled population will be stuck. They won't get any high dividend, and then they're going to have all these people that they thought were an asset, but they may be a liability, I mean, financially, I mean, to the country. So I think the question really is, can U.S. and China get out of this a superpower competing who wins uh, mind of thinking and get into how do we think about the whole world developing and realize the wealth and the quality that will emerge and how to help minimize the negative impact. You know, I think about this a lot myself. The way I describe this problem is the inequality in the world used to be 80-20 and now it's more like 95-5. It's more like 5% of the people have 95% of the power. That's right. And it's kind of perplexing. And I don't really know that I have a solution, but what do you, like, here you are, you're writing books like this, you're speaking at conferences like this, you're drawing people's attention to this, what are the key elements of solving this problem, in your opinion? Right. I don't know all the final answers, but I can throw out a few ideas I, as I did in my book. Uh, one is obviously income distribution or social welfare to make sure that no one's left behind, to make sure there are buffers 
for people who, who lose their jobs, at least within wealthy enough countries who can afford it. Uh, some call for universal basic income. I think that's probably too broad and too expensive. I think it should be targeted and conditional on people. That is, if someone loses a job as a teller and doesn't have the skill set to immediately get another job because AI is taking away all the routine jobs, can there be a you know two-year buffer provided for the family of the, those people losing the jobs, but on the condition that they retrain for a new job as a nurse or uh, aeronautic engineer or, or, sorry, aeronautic repair. I'm, I'm not trying to move people into, you know, fancy PhD jobs. That's not practical. <laughs> yeah. But there are many jobs that will be available. For example, elderly care. You know, we're all living longer and people over 80 need five times as much elderly care. So a tra- someone who's willing who loses the job as a cashier to become an elderly caretaker, maybe two months training is enough. They want to be a nurse, maybe two years training, but nevertheless, conditional training to move people along because it's not as though there will be no jobs left. Uh, There are plenty of jobs. It's just that the new jobs in the AI era will be less routine. So training will be needed for people coming off the routine jobs. So the first one is um, some kind of income distribution, social welfare, uh, to ensure there's a minimal basic needs met, provided people are improving and retraining themselves. Second is the retraining process itself that goes from, for example, a governmental program that says we'll provide for anyone over 80 X hours of uh, elderly care, which is good for the society, good for the older people and creates jobs or a national program that says we will give corporations a tax discount if they provide employee retraining into new jobs that are less displaceable. Those are things governments can do. They're not ultra expensive um, and they get things going. There can also be efforts to look into say the vocational programs, the vocational schools. I'm sure they're all training for the old days But if you ask anyone in AI, we can tell you the job of a nurse will be around a long time, maybe more, (laughs) right? The job of elderly care, definitely, because AI has no compassion. The job of a plumber will last a long time because the pipes are a mess and they'll not be uniform. They will not be uniformly uh, fixed it. So keep doing those vocational jobs. But that of a, for example, auto mechanic, well, that job may not be so great anymore. That uh, assembly line inspection, well, that's certainly not very good anymore. Uh, customer service rep, not so good anymore. So, so there can just be a shift of resources. Almost they're not costing so much, but just train more people in jobs that are, will last longer. I also think corporations can do something. Amazon has started a program to offer $12,000 a year for people who make $28,000 a year in Amazon. These would be their tellers and um, people who pick the merchandise that get packages sent to you. Um, I'm sure Jeff Bezos knows these people will lose their jobs within five years. So he's training them ahead of time, paying 40% of salary for the training, and that's very admirable. So I think these kinds of things done by governments and corporations, starting with a few that don't cost too much or paid by those who can afford it, like Amazon in the U.S., I think will shed light and then um, help others go into it. 
because I, I also am realistic. We look at the unemployment numbers being at historical low. Uh, no one's going to shift large percentages of a national budget to solve a problem that yet hasn't yet happened. But the, the concern I have is once it happens, it's going to grow dramatically and become harder to handle if we don't get started now. There's some people that say, look, I know you think this is a problem, but it's really not a problem because if you go back 100, 200, 300 years, you know, 300 years ago, half of our jobs were agriculture. And now we have tractors and, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. And we don't need, we neither need nor want half the people in the world to have an agricultural job. We don't need, it's not necessary. And manufacturing and food and nursing and all those other things, they created jobs to take the farmers. Naturally. Right. So you could have gotten all worried about, oh, we're going to lose all our farmers and nobody's going to have anything to do. People always got stuff to do. So what do you say to the person who says all these people that talk about AI replacing jobs, it, they're just chicken little. They're just saying that the sky is falling, but it's really not going to fall. Like, how do you respond to that person? Yeah. Okay. I respond in probably three ways. Uh, one is that uh, I do believe technology will create jobs, but we don't know what they are and when they'll come but the displacement is happening soon. For example, the internet 20 years ago is one of the major things that created the 10 million Uber and DD driver jobs today. But there's no way 20 years ago we could have counted on that. Of course, now it's here, it's taken the load off of a lot of people who may have been displaced by the internet. And that's good. Mm -hmm. And that, I think that's part of their argument. But I think the issue with AI is a lot of AI is targeted at job displacement. People are building uh, companies we are funding, companies uh, like Amazon and Google are doing things that will take, do things for instead of people, customer service rep, loan officers, autonomous stores, each of which will directly or indirectly replace people's jobs. So the jobs are going down in the next five years, but the next, the AI induced Uber job equivalent, we don't know when that is, it may be 20 years. So there may be a time gap. Okay, I do believe ultimately things will work themselves out, but we have a time gap. And AI is um, coming very quickly, arguably more quickly than industrial revolution, electricity, and the PC revolution, because the infrastructure is already built. You've got cloud, and cloud can do customer service, and customer service jobs are gone. It's not like electricity in order to displace um, you know, people who, um, uh, let's say, light up this, uh, the lanterns on, on the street. Well, it took a long time for electricity grid to be built, a long time for the public infrastructure to change the lights to be electrical. So there was plenty of time for that. This is faster. So number one reason is AI may be faster, is faster. And number two reason is AI will tend to not create routine jobs. So in the day of agriculture, the manufacturing transition, you've got someone who does routine job in the farm, becoming someone who does routine job in an assembly line. Uh, not much training is needed. They just have to move. So it's not as hard, but in AI, because AI can do all routine jobs. So any jobs it happens to create along the way, if it's routine, it'll do it. So it will only create non-routine jobs. So if we have an equal number of jobs lost and gained, but the ones lost are routine jobs, the ones gained are non-routine jobs, then training is required. So that's kind of um, uh, the, second, the second big reason. 
And the third is that there's no, no downside to doing the retraining because even if I'm wrong and you know, 500 million jobs are lost, six billion jobs are created, even if I'm totally wrong and so many jobs are created, there is, will definitely be a mismatch that these six billion jobs will have requirements that these 500 million people will have a hard time meeting if we don't retrain. So that's why I think if we, the retraining, you can't go wrong. Even if I'm totally wrong with my numbers, there's still a strong value uh, in doing the retraining. Now, myself personally, I'm not personally worried about creating new jobs, training new jobs. I think that'll work itself out. Here's what worries me, and I would like to know your thoughts about this. What worries me is this. Let me, let me explain it this way. In computer engineering, there is this concept, OSI seven layer model, and really what it says is computer data is a pyramid, and you have the ones and zeros on a wire down at the bottom of the pyramid, and then at the top of the pyramid, you have like an operating system or Microsoft Excel or you know, some application. And what I always noticed everywhere I went when, when I would think about this, because they teach you this in engineering school, is at the top of all computer pyramids, there's a person, <laughs> okay? Without exception, right? Like, yeah, you can have computer programs that play Go and play chess and do speech recognition, but you always have to have an intelligent being that's pulling the strings, right? And so like, um, there was an interview between Joe Rogan and Elon Musk a, a few months ago, and they were talking about how the machines were gonna be smart and, you know, and humans were gonna be unnecessary. And I listened to that and I thought, I don't see any evidence that these machines are actually getting smart. They're getting faster and they're getting better at pattern recognition, but they're not actually getting smart. But when people go on these like AI fantasies, they distract your attention. They divert your attention away from the fact that there's always somebody in charge. So as a person who's been teaching Google advertising for 17 years and watching all the dramas and everything that happened with people using that system and everything, here's what concerns me is that it's really easy for somebody at Google to say, hey, we have this cohort of behavior that's bad, so we're gonna stamp out all these people, and all of a sudden a bunch of advertising accounts get shut down and a bunch of people go out of business. It would be incredibly easy for somebody at Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, any of this to go, you know, we don't like people with these particular political views and we can adjust this little setting in the algorithm and those people will not be heard. And we'll just, we're just going to reduce it 15%. But I'm in marketing. And I know that a 15% difference could be life and death. I know that, you know, okay, here's an argument that I have here with my family members. I hate Alexa. I don't want that thing. I don't want Amazon listening to our conversations. A very good longtime colleague who I completely trust, he's a straight up guy, said, 
you can buy data on the black market from Amazon that tells you how many times a week people in a household are having sex, whether it's heterosex, homosex, you can go buy this data in the black market that's, that's been collected mm. from Alexa. Mm. That's what worries me. Okay. It's the fact there's always a human at the top of the chain. And most of the time you don't know who it is. They're not accountable to anybody. We don't have any legal structures to even police what they're doing. Okay. So that's like a big, long kind of concern of mine, but I'm sure you haven't, this is not the first time you've thought about any of this. So no. talk to me, please. Okay, so first on this dystopia future or, or dystopia slash utopian future where machines are so powerful that humans are not needed. I totally agree with you and I'm very frustrated that there are many people who are not in AI likes to be imaginative. <laughs> on the one hand, I can't just, they are reading these papers, you know, AI on, in a newspaper, AI is beating people in Go, doing better job at um, lung cancer diagnosis, uh, beating people in debates, recognizing speech better than people, da, da, da. And they say, wow, the end is coming. But what they don't realize, as you said, is that AI is just a pattern recognition that within one single domain, train a huge amount of data, it can do one deterministic thing or make one deterministic decision. It is nothing more than a supercharged Excel. And um, an Excel that, you know, feed a lot of data, it figures out its own formulas only for certain problems. That's yes. all it is. The I, I'm wanting to high five you like, five. yes. All right, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. What they don't realize is just one set of algorithms powering that. It's not like someone in medical made a breakthrough on cancer, someone in chess or go made a breakthrough. It's just one generic algorithm that could do simple problems one at a time. Now, yes, it will displace a lot of jobs, create a lot of value, but it does not have any natural way to self-learn and go to the next level. So mm -hmm. any fear is uh, unfounded. I am frustrated to see that we have uh, self-appointed futurists, physicists, um, historians, and the politicians who are so imaginative, but <laughs> and I talked to the AI community, 90% uh, of the top AI people uh, will say what I said, show their frustration, and many of them thank me for writing the book I did, which elucidates uh, this issue. So that's on the paranoia, dystopia, utopia issue. The other yep. one is um, human at the top, and the danger is actually in the human doing something evil, whether it's uh, selling our data, invading our privacy, determining how loud a voice we should have, uh, or influencing our elections. And it's already been demonstrated over the past events, this has happened. So I think um, you know, there has to be rules around AI and has to be strong consequences for terrible misbehavior. For example, many people think China doesn't manage AI and data. Actually, China has fewer rules, but the one rule it has, if anyone sells data that they don't have the right to sell, then they go to jail. So wow. it came out, a bunch of people went to, well, a bunch of people, actually there was a lot of black market data and overnight they were gone because there are these examples. 
So that's an example of an effective rule. I'm not sure in the U.S. you want to uh, categorically people put people in jail, but, but that is a serious offense, and I think sending a message is appropriate. So I think ways of ensuring people doing outrageous things are punished and are detectable and that there is transparency. I think the rules about AI is about governing those people who are that person at the top or the person who has the power. It's not about governing AI per se. AI has no ability or interests uh, or understanding of wrongdoing. It's always the people out of greed, out of some other reason. And I think finding that few points to have some rules, I'm, I'm all for that. That's very refreshing. So how do you even regulate you know, companies the size of Google or Facebook? I, I was um, at Google campus in Mountain View last spring you know, with, with my son, who's 20 years old. And I said, well, welcome to a corporation that's at least as powerful as the top 50 countries in the world. Yeah. Right. And it's like rock, paper, scissors, right? Like, okay, governments have a certain domain of power and influence, yeah. but a company like Google has this other domain of power and influence. I don't even know how you have a check and balance for what they're doing. How do you even manage, control, or regulate, or oversee what they're doing when they make all these algorithms? Yeah. Like, how would anybody even sort it out? You know, if, if you said, okay, we'll have a video camera in every cubicle, and you can look at the code that everybody's writing, you still couldn't regulate it. You don't know what they're doing. You don't know what they're thinking. My goodness, what do you do about this? Yes, I think um, excessive power by powerful companies is an issue. The optimistic part of me would like to think AI is broad and there will be competitors and competitors will push and make sure that the competitors can choose to be more transparent. For example, in Europe, there are now emergences of uh, search engines that captures nothing from you. That is a zero content taken from you, therefore nothing taken, nothing can be stolen. Uh, there are social networks that are being put so that you own your data. Now, I'm a little bit conflicted on that because when you do that, the power of AI cannot be maximized. In fact, it'll right. be minimized. But right. that off, maybe we should, um, uh, but then on the other, other hand, some people really have, get so much convenience, they are willing to give up uh, mm -hmm. privacy. So there should be two modes for people who opt in and opt out. So I think that might be one approach. Hoping for competition to push Google from continuing to be responsible is another. There are these um, new ways to externally supervise and ensuring there are severe consequences, huge fines, personal liability. That would be another approach. Obviously, there's the antitrust. If Google extends its monopolistic power to new areas, that needs to be pushed back so that they don't get worse than being monopolies in one area. So I'm not, am I confident these will be enough? I'm, I'm not sure. I think we should do some of them. Um, I happen to think the European GDPR is a little bit excessive and also ineffective, but it's a good step forward that people will we'll see how it can evolve. For example, things that uh, the Europeans uh, added are the right to be forgotten, 
all the data about you if you want to, at least on social networks. And then they have things like cross usage of data. Data collected for one purpose cannot be used for another. So again, that will protect you, but then that will reduce the efficacy of AI. So I think GDPR is a wonderful thing to study and see how it works out. I think the problem of it is it often transfers the decision to the end user and the end user cannot understand even the question, right? I'm collecting a phone call for the purpose of verifying your password. I will use your phone call only as a way to communicate you with you for emergencies. I will not use it for targeting ads. That sentence makes perfect sense to you and me and your audience, but most people have no idea. Then they don't know to click yes or no. So we can't transfer that decision to the end user. Something needs to be done. Sometimes technology is the best way to, to harness technology, right? The, in computer security, we got you know, code, fighting code from being a virus and being entered. In the Y2K, we got technology to control the problems. Maybe some smart AI algorithm is what's needed to give people maybe a dial between super private and super convenient or super private and super secure, right? And given those settings, maybe it will do approximate what we want because we as the individual users don't know how to specify what we want. So can there be a trustable super AI maybe with open source to help us uh, make those decisions? I know people who are already tech paranoia uh, will hate the idea of using tech to control tech problems, but as a tech person, that's what I can uh, come up with. Last question, and we're going to wrap. AI superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order, title of your book. When you say New World Order, could you just maybe add one or two things that that word means to you or predictions that you are making here that you and I have not talked about today? What is the New World Order? Sure. I think it means uh, several things. First, it means the corporations will have superpower and they'll need to be responsible or we will need to check them or infuse um, media supervision as well as competition to ensure they're well behaved. New world order means US and China will become by far the largest two beneficiaries and controllers of AI uh, and data for the world. And what does it mean for the world to continue to move forward? How do poor countries, how do uh, countries who don't have control over, over data, or should every country control their data? Uh, how should that be sorted? And if every country controls its data, every person controls its data, then AI will let work less well, and also the world will be less global. But if you put it all together, then US, China, and Google, and uh, Tencent will have too much power. So how to deal with that tension? and also responsible behavior. How does a large country superpower, US, China, how should they behave? Not as mortal enemies, but as responsible co-leaders of the world. For China, that means becoming a new leader and learning the responsibilities. For US, that means coming off the single leader, sharing the leadership with another country. And I think it's better to engage, it's better to share best practices, even though they will compete at times, but important not to let competition get ahead of us. And lastly, new world order means the future of jobs will be less routine, will be more 
interesting, and that means a lot of things have to change with respect to people's um, ambitions, priorities, meaning of life not just being work, and most importantly, the future of education. How do we train our children and their children to be the responsible, creative, compassionate person, not someone who um, uh, just wants to make money doing a routine job, because those days are over. You know what I think is interesting about your book, your work, your talks, and all of that is even though you're talking about the latest bleeding edge, cutting edge, you know, forward march of technology, what this is really about is the most fundamental questions of what does it mean to be human? What kind of society should we strive for? How do we responsibly use power? Like, you find this in 3,000-year-old pieces of literature, right? So there's really, what I hear in your responses is, it's almost like a return to the classical sources of how do we think of, like, it's no coincidence that one of your big realizations came from talking to a Buddhist master. Right. Right? Yes, that's right. I think the wisdom is all there. Uh, we may have gotten our judgments clouded by all the capitalism growth and uh, industrial revolution. And uh, maybe it's time to return to the wisdom that we've always had. <laughs> well, that's a great place to end. Well, Dr. Lee, again, the book AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order, you can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And thank you for talking to me today. I've been looking forward to this for the last few weeks, and I thought we had a great conversation. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. <laughs>